0: We are in Psalm 124 and 126 today. So if you have your Bible turned there, if not, it'll be on the screen. Um, but I, I just want to start with this. How many of you, some of you are too young for this, but how many of you remember the early 90s when there was a mini series that came on CBS called Lonesome Dove? Western mini series, right? Okay, I love that series. Uh, it's one of my favorite things it's ever been on. I, I can quote it basically from end to end. I can do the accents. My wife and my daughter think it's spectacular. They love when I do that. It, it really entertains. That's, that's called sarcasm, people. Um, but there, if, you, if you're not familiar with Lonesome Dove, it's the story of these two legendary Texas Rangers, Gus and Woodrow. And they've gotten old, and they've decided, let's have one last big adventure before we take up the rocking chair. And there's this one scene that I want to tell you about this morning where Gus and Woodrow go to San Antonio. They go into a saloon where they used to be well-known. In fact, their picture is still on the wall behind the bar. But the bartender doesn't recognize them. And he just thinks they're two old cowboys that have come in off the dirt, and they're dragging in dust into his bar, and he fusses at them. And and so Gus gets mad and slams his head against the bar and then whacks him with his revolver. And then they have to skedaddle because otherwise the law is going to come get them for assault. And so as they're riding out of town, Gus says the following, and I quote, he says, the reason they don't remember us is we never got killed. If a thousand Comanches had cornered us in some gully somewhere and wiped us out like the Sioux just done Custer, why, they'd remember us sure. Heck, they'd be writing songs about us for a hundred years. And I tell you that story because of this. These two psalms we're going to look at are psalms that that talk about God's deliverance, God's rescue of us. We We need to remember what He's done for us. We don't need to forget. One of the worst things we can do is forget what God's done for us. Forget where we were. Forget where we would be without Him. We're in this series on the Psalms of Ascent. Remember, those are the songs, 15 songs, that the Israelites would sing three times a year as they walked the long distance through the wilderness, up the hill, up the incline, into Jerusalem to worship God. They would sing these songs, and two out of the 15 were specifically to remind us what God has done for us. And I know we're in November and you think, okay, this is going to be a Thanksgiving sermon. This is way bigger than that. This is way bigger than count your blessings. This is remember specifically what God's done for you. Not because God is like Gus McCray and he's an insecure old guy who just feels bad because he's been forgotten. God does not get his feelings hurt. Aren't you glad God doesn't get his feelings hurt? God is way too secure for that. He is not affected by how we act. No, He knows, He knows that we need to remember Him because otherwise we become weaker, we become less. We need to remember what He's done for us, not for His sake, but for ours. So let's talk this morning about what happens when we remember our rescuer. So let's look at, chapter, at Psalm 124, then we're going to look at 126, and then we'll look at two principles, two things we need to get from these to become the people we need to be. So first of all, Psalm 124 goes like this. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So in Psalm 124, we don't know what the context is that he's talking about. When he talks about the people were against us and the waves almost crushed us, there are some who think he's talking about the parting of the Red Sea. Obviously, that was a time when God protected His people from the waves. But the waves there could be metaphorical. You know, if you've read the Old Testament, there is... No shortage of stories of where God shows up in the nick of time and rescues His people in some spectacular and unexpected way. Let me tell you three that you may not know real quickly. So, in, in 2 Kings 6, there's a story in which the people of God are under siege and Elisha, the prophet of God, is in the city where the soldiers are camped all around them. They can see the fires uh, of the soldiers ready to invade, and Elisha prays to God, and God strikes the army blind. So, the enemy army, immediately, all of them become blind, and Elisha is able to lead them by the hand into the city where they are arrested and and captured. The next chapter is a a story where, again, the city of Samaria, the capital city of Israel, is under siege. This time, it lasts a long time. People are starting to run out of fuel run out of food, people are starting to starve to death, and God does another miracle. He, he makes the, the enemy soldiers outside hear the sound of chariots and horses thundering across the desert, and they think that the Israelites have hired reinforcements, and they get panicked, and they run away. They flee, leaving their, their tents, their food, their clothing, their provisions, so the people in the city are able to come out and get food. Then there's a third one I wanted to tell you about. You probably don't know this one. Second Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat, one of my favorite biblical names, King Jehoshaphat knows that he's about to fight a battle against an overwhelming enemy. In fact, it's three different nations that have allied themselves against Judah. And so he sends the choir of Israel out in front of the army. Can you picture an army of soldiers marching through the desert and a choir marching in front of them, a whole choir of Levites singing songs to the Lord? And as the enemy hears these songs of praise, they, they become so disoriented and panicked, they begin to fight each other. And so when the army of, the Judas, uh, of Judah gets there, they find nothing but dead bodies. The, the victory is already won. That is one powerful choir right there, right? And there are so many more stories like that we could tell. So we don't know which of those stories he's specifically referring to. All we know is he's saying, listen. Every time we've been up against it, every time it seems like we have no hope, God has shown up and delivered us. Let's not forget that. In fact, the very first line says, let Israel now say. That's an instruction. Remember, this is a hymnal. These are the songs that the Israelites were to sing to the Lord. That's an instruction to the worship leader. That's basically telling Nathan, if Nathan was leading us in a song, to stop the music and say, listen, y'all, I can't hear you. Are you singing or what? Are you going to sing this? Do you mean these words? Because we're not going to go on singing if you're just going to mumble it. I want to hear it. I want to hear it from the bottom of your toes. I want you to sing with all your might because God has delivered us. Now, I have to tell you, I have to confess to you, and I'm not proud of this, that even though I grew up in church, and when I say grew up in church, I mean I was in church every time the doors were open. My parents believed in taking me to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. My mom made sure that my bedtime stories were Bible stories. I heard the gospel over and over again growing up. When I was nine, I made a prof- profession of faith and was baptized. When I was 16, I walked the aisle again and just reconfirmed my commitment to Christ. Even though we as Baptists don't do, uh, you know, that kind of thing, I did that. I was, I was, I was, that was my confirmation, really. And yet, as a young adult, I felt guilty because I just didn't get excited about the good news. All my life, I'd heard preachers say, boy, the good news about Jesus is the most exciting thing. And I would think to myself, well, I guess there's something wrong with me because there's a lot of things I find more exciting than the stories of Jesus. And I think it's because I was raised with it. I was raised with it. I took it for granted. It's sort of like that scene in Forrest Gump when Lieutenant Dan, don't worry, Carrie, I'm not going to do the voice. So, Lieutenant Dan tells Forrest that you don't have to worry about money anymore. And he says, well, that's good. One less thing. And that's sort of, I promise this whole sermon's not going to be movie quotes, but that, that, that's sort of, that was my attitude about the gospel. Well, I don't have to worry about hell. One less thing. But think about people in the ancient world. If you grew up in the ancient world, Israel or anywhere else, that was not something you took for granted. You know that that archaeologists have uncovered cities, villages in Palestine from before the Israelites invaded and claimed it as their promised land. And they found that oftentimes in a house in that society, you would find in the walls the the skeleton of an infant. And what it means is that when that family built their house, they sacrificed one of their children as a way of saying, okay, gods, are you paying attention? I want you to be on my side. I want you to bless this house. I want you to give us Uh, Provision. No one in the ancient world took it for granted that God was on their side. You lived and died hoping to gain the favor of the gods. And along comes the one true God, and He says to Israel, Don't you understand? I love you. I'm on your side. I am with you. And that's why they were to sing this song. Beth Moore says that Psalm 124 should make us consider what our lives would be if God wasn't on our side. So if you're like me, and you got saved early on, or even if you've gotten saved later in life, there's a tendency to forget how good things are for you. So what Beth Moore says is, you know, she she thinks about it all the time, how when she was a a little girl, she was abused. And and then Christ came into her life, but she thought she was going to grow up and be a prosecuting attorney, because she thought, my job is going to be to put people in jail who hurt people like that person who hurt me. And she said, if I would have followed that path, I would be so bitter today. I would think I was being righteous. I would think that the the emotion I was feeling was righteous indignation. It would really be bitterness and anger and and a vengeful spirit. And I'd put people in jail who were innocent just because they were accused. I would hate men, although I would need to be validated by them, so I'd go through toxic relationship after toxic relationship, divorce after divorce, But Jesus came into my life and changed my heart. And when He changed my heart, He changed my trajectory. And I didn't become that person at all. I went down a different path. Have you ever sat down and just taken a pen and a piece of paper and written down, here's where I would be if God wasn't with me. If there was no God, or if I didn't believe in God, or if God was a different kind of God who wasn't really on my side, here's where I would be. Take a moment to do that this week. Take 30 minutes. It's worth an hour. Pray and tell the Holy Spirit, reveal to me what would be different about my life if you weren't real or if you weren't on my side. Here's the second thing. Psalm 126. Psalm 126 goes like this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, this time we know the context because what happened to the Israelites after, hundreds of years after those stories I told you earlier. The kingdom of Israel, the the people of God were split into two, and the kingdom of Israel was in the north, and they got decimated. They were captured by the Assyrians. They were carried off into exile and never heard from again. All that was left was the tribe of Judah to the south, where the, the sons of David were on the throne there in Jerusalem. And 150 years after Israel was gone, Judah was invaded by Babylon. Biggest, most powerful nation in that part of the world came in, broke down the walls of Jerusalem, burned the temple, carried away the people into exile, where they were told to worship a different god, different gods, speak a different language, adapt themselves to different customs. And that should have been the end of the Jewish people. They should have been gone to history. That should have been the the last we heard of them. Because after all, when's the last time you heard of an Assyrian? Assyrian. The Assyrians were the biggest empire in the world 3,000 years ago. It's been about 3,000 years since anyone heard of an Assyrian. They're gone. Same with the Babylonians. You run into any, you run into any Phoenicians and H-E-B or Philistines or Hittites or Moabites or Edomites or some other kind of ite, they're all gone. Those are all nations that were powerful thousands of years ago. They predate Israel, and yet they're all gone. Why? there's not even descendants of them. There's no Edomite uh, reunion once a year over in that part of the year. What happened? What happened is this. In the ancient world, when your nation got conquered, your civilization ceased to exist. You either died or you started worshiping new gods. You started speaking new languages. You started assimilating into a different culture, and that was the end of your culture. You became someone else. And yet, tiny little Judah This small little nation, not even all of Israel, just that tiny little tribe. From that tribe came the Jewish people today. Folks, if you want proof, objective proof that the God of the Bible is the one true God, ask yourself the question, how are the Jews still around? You Look down through history, how many different nations have tried to wipe those poor people off the face of the earth and have tried their best, and yet it hasn't succeeded? Why? Why? Romans 11 says God has a plan for the Jewish people, even at the end of time. There will be a great turning back to God through their Messiah, Jesus Christ, of the Jewish people. See, when 126 starts with, we were like those who dream, our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy, what that's telling the story of is the day 70 years after their nation was conquered, when Cyrus, the emperor of Persia signed a decree that said the Jews can go home. Not only can they go home, here's some treasury, here's some, here's, some, here's some money from our treasury, go rebuild your city, go rebuild your temple, go worship your God again. That didn't happen in the ancient world. It never happened. That's why it says in verse 2, the, the nations were saying, the Lord has done great things for them. In other words, all the nations around who didn't even believe in Yahweh were saying, golly, their God must be real. Look what He did. This has never been done before. And yet, look at verse 4. See, Psalm 126 is like a lot of the Psalms. It has two very distinct halves. The first half is all about praise and remembrance, but the second half is all about, Lord, we need you now. Because verse 4 says, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Or as, as Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, Lord, do it again. In other words, it's great what you did for our forefathers. I'm so glad that we still have a people. But right now, we're in a desert. And I know you're going to be good to us someday. Right now, we're in the in-between time. Please let me live to see your deliverance again. You know, there are probably people, in fact, I would bet there are dozens of people in this room who would say, that's where I am. I'm in a desert right now. I believe in God. I know He's done great things for me, but right now, I'm not seeing it. Right now, I don't know what He's up to. Right now, I don't feel His deliverance. I'm in an in-between time, and I'm struggling. And it's okay to admit that. In fact, there's no better place than right here to admit that. In fact, I didn't do this in the first service, but I just feel led to do it now. If you would say, right now, I need God to show up and bring me some deliverance soon, would you just raise your hand? Raise them up. All right. Thank y'all. Thank you. So what do we do with Psalm 126? What does it say to us? He says, like streams in the Negev. The Negev was the the desert region of Judah. You know what happens when there's rain in a desert? Have you ever seen this? When the rain hits a desert, when the big soaking rain hits a desert, there's all these seeds that have been lying dormant for for years sometimes, and suddenly they germinate. And overnight, you wake up and you're in uh, this beautiful forest all these blooms all around you, the desert is beautified overnight, and that's what the psalmist is asking, Lord, let us, let us see that again. We're dead now, but Lord, bring us back to life. Lord, we're, we're struggling, we're thirsting, we're dying, but Lord, deliver us today. We're calling on your deliverance. So, what do these two psalms tell us about what to do when we're in that desert time? Two things. Number one, Number one, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Now, let me tell you what I don't mean when I say trust in the Lord. There's a school of thought in Christian teaching today. You will hear it often on television. You will read it a lot in Christian bestsellers. The school of thought says, God wants nothing but good for you. You just need to claim it. So, if your marriage is struggling, just stand up and say, Jesus, I claim your victory. Bring my husband home. Make my wife love me again. Lord, my kids have gone off the rails. I, I just pray victory over all their struggles and over the demons that are leading them astray, and that you would get them back on the right track. Lord, I, I'm sick. Uh, by your stripes, I am healed. So I just claim victory over this illness and I claim healing. And Lord, I, I I I'm broke, but Lord, you've got you own the cattle on a thousand hills. So I'm just calling on you to open up the storehouses of heaven and just pour out blessings on me. And if you've got enough faith, if you've got enough faith in God, then it will be yours. It will be yours. It will not fail, God. We'll never fail to give you what you need and what you ask for as long as you have enough faith. And thank you very much for not amending anything I just said, okay? Because even though you can find passages in the Bible that seem to back that up, it's because you've ripped them out of context. And when you read the whole Bible for what it really says, what it really says is, yes, God intervenes in our lives. Yes, God does great things for us, but no, He does not give us everything we ask for. God is not a dog on a leash. God is God, and we're not. And I like, when I, when I talk about trusting in the Lord, what I mean is saying to the Lord, Lord, things aren't going the way I want them to. And I know you've got the power to, to, to straighten things out, and I'm going to trust you until then because I believe that you know better than I do what's right. Or to put it another way, this is how Tim Keller puts it, God answers every prayer you pray the way you would if you knew what He knows. Some of you probably need to write that down. God answers every prayer you pray the way you would if you knew what He knows. Now, I've got a couple of stories to sort of as analogies for that point. So, um, when I was in seminary, I, I was in a class one day, and we started all our classes off with prayer. So, before the class started, a man in the, in the class raised his hand and asked for a prayer request. Now, this guy was in his mid-40s, which made him ancient, because the rest of us were in our early 20s. And he raised his hand. He said, uh, I want you to pray for this boy, this teenage boy, and he named him. Um, he was the boyfriend of my daughter. But my wife and I made her break it off because it just wasn't a healthy relationship, and he did not take this well. And he's been stalking my daughter. He's been, he's been scaring my daughter. He's been refusing to go away. And last night, I looked out my window, and I saw him sitting in his car out in front of our house, just sitting there staring at the house like, you don't think you can get rid of me that easily, do you? And so I went out to talk to him. Now, I want you all to know, all of us were 22, 23 years old. Um, We were barely older than that kid. In fact, I would be willing to bet some of the people in that room, some of the guys in that room had been that teenage idiot before, right, that stalked his girlfriend and made her miserable. And yet, I can promise you, you could feel it in the room. Every one of us was sitting there saying, oh, that kid's going to get beat down. That daddy is going to go off on that boy. Because even at that age, we knew there's something special about a dad and a daughter. There's a rage that, that is unique to a dad with a daughter. He could be 5'2 and 110 pounds. You don't want to mess with his daughter. He's going to get all over you. And so we were thinking, okay, dad's going to go out of there and drag him out of the car and slap him around. And that's going to be the end of that kid. And he's, going to, he's asking for prayer now because the kid's in the hospital, right? That's what this is about. And I'll be honest, I was looking forward to hearing the details. But instead, he said, so I went out there, and I didn't really know what I was going to say. I was mad, but I found myself sitting in that car next to him, and we talked, and he ended up accepting Christ as his Savior. And we were just blown away. He's like, I I hope you'll pray for him, that he'll follow through on his commitment, that he'll get baptized, that he'll follow Christ and become the man God wants him to be, and we were like, This just doesn't happen. And so when we think about enemies, I I think about that story a lot because all of us have people who've hurt us. All of us have people who've made our lives miserable. All of us have people who we say to God, okay, Lord, your word says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, that we should leave vengeance over to you, that we should let you take care of our enemies. Okay, when's it going to happen, God? I mean, I'm I'm sitting here waiting, and I'm still struggling, and he's prospering. I'm crying, and he's laughing. So how come he's got a good? When are you going to squash him like a bug? When are, you going to, when are you going to slap him around, God, because I'm waiting for that? And what we don't realize is, yes, God is a God of justice and wrath, and God is going to make sure everyone gets what's coming to them unless Jesus got what was coming to them, and they accept that, right? What we don't realize is, while God is going to bring about justice, what He wants is repentance, while God has our back, what He wants is salvation. See, we don't realize that that enemy of ours is His child too. And we want Him to stomp over there and drag Him out of the car and slap Him around, and God's saying, yes, if He doesn't repent, that's exactly what's going to happen. But I want repentance. Think about that the next time you're wondering about what's happening to your enemy. Second story. So when we had our first child, and looking at these babies this morning reminds me when, when Kaylee was just out of the womb and, and I was determined to be the perfect dad and so I was going to go to all the doctor's appointments and nobody told me. Uh, that that part of being a parent was you have to hold your child perfectly still while they stick needles in her, right? Nobody told me that your child is going to look at you with those big brown eyes like, what are you doing, Dad? Why are you not rescuing me from this evil person in his lab coat uh, who's killing me? And I remember one appointment I actually missed, and I can't remember why. I'm sure I had a good excuse. But um, Carrie came back, and she's like, boy, that was a rough one they gave her three shots and they had to burn her umbilical cord off because it hasn't dropped off yet. She was, she was in terrible pain. And, and, and Carrie said, you picked the right one to miss, I'll tell you that. You owe me now. And I'm like, yeah, I do. And, and if Kaylee had been able to speak she would have said, listen, if you two love me, you won't let this happen. If you two love me, you will make sure this doesn't happen. When she was two and they had to haul her off and put tubes in her ears, I can never, I'll never forget how hard it was to watch them carry my daughter off as she's crying and holding out her arms to me. And, and I'm sure she's thinking, I thought you loved me. And what I couldn't explain to her because she wasn't able to understand is, it's because I love you that I'm letting them do this. And that helped me when I was a young parent. It helped me understand how God feels. Because believe it or not, God loves you more than you love your kids. So think about how it hurts Him to watch you suffer. Think about how much it hurts Him to watch you cry. You know, when the Psalms say He keeps our tears in a bottle, you know what that means, right? Every single tear that falls, He knows it. He feels it. He weeps alongside of you. And if there was a better way, He would have given it to you now. We can trust Him. We can trust Him. Secondly, we need to sow gospel seed. Now, that's kind of a weird way to say this, but here's what I'm saying. The last two verses of 126 about sowing in tears and reaping in joy, you know, I always thought that just meant things are bad now, but they'll get better. Life is cyclical. You're down now, but you'll be up. This too shall pass. By the way, it's not in the Bible. This too shall pass. But if that's all it's saying, there's nothing profound in that. You don't have to believe in God to believe that life is cyclical. What it's saying is something far more wonderful. What it's saying is it's not not just saying, okay, God is going to turn your tears into joy. God is going to turn your sorrow into happiness. That's, it's not saying that. It's saying God is going to make your sorrow, He's going to make joy out of your sorrows. He's going to, make, He's going to plant seeds of tears that, that reap a harvest of joy. In other words, not only will you become joyful, you'll be joyful because of your sorrows. You'll be able to look back and say, thank you, God, that I went through that. Now I understand now I see our tears become a harvest of joy. But they have to be gospel tears. And what I mean by gospel tears is what is the gospel? The gospel is that we're more sinful than we ever dreamed, but we're more loved than we ever hoped, right? So when we weep tears of repentance, not just tears of circumstance, see our tendency is when things are bad, we cry before the Lord and, Lord, oh, woe is me. Why are things this way? When are you going to change things? But gospel tears are when we let that suffering bring us to the point of saying, okay, Lord, what is there in me that needs to change? While you've got me here, while you've got my full attention, while I'm not distracted by all my happy-go-lucky activities, let's get some things straight. What do I need to change? Don't waste that moment of suffering, that moment when you're finally focused on God, to actually get down before Him and get right with the Lord. Because I can think about a time when I was, uh, when I was well, let me, let me go back. So, Derek Kidner, Bible scholar, talks about how in the New Testament, one of the great themes is suffering becomes righteousness. God uses our times of suffering to make us more righteous. For example, 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Only Paul could get away with calling our troubles light and momentary but he's right. God takes our pain and makes it victory. He does things in our lives that he couldn't do without that suffering, that we wouldn't experience without those hard times. So, so Kidner is an Old Testament uh, uh, scholar. His point is that's something you read in the New Testament, but not the Old, except here. Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6, that's the only place in the Old Testament where it says, your tears of repentance become songs of joy because repentance leads to victory. Now, let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about, because some of you are, are, are having a hard time with this, I know. So, 27 years ago, I'm newly married. I'm not very good at it. I'm not very good at a lot of things, being adult, and I'm in a bad place. I'm in a really bad place. Now, granted, I was 22 years old. I was not mature. I probably made things seem far worse than they were, but I was so down. I was so in despair. I literally prayed several times during that stage of my life, God, if it's not going to get any better than this, just, just kill me. Drop a piano on me. Strike me with lightning. You know, Let me just not wake up in the morning. I don't care. Just, I don't want to live this way. And it was during that time when I, I thought about that, that cliché I'd heard all my life, You never know Jesus is all you need until He's all you have, and I decided to put that to the test, and all I knew to do was, well, I'm just going to read the Bible more. I'd been waking up and reading a chapter a day, which I thought was pretty good, but now I was like, okay, I'm going to turn off the TV. I'm just going to read and read and read, and then that wasn't enough, and I started reading at night when I should have been sleeping, and it was during that time that I really learned to hear God's voice and experience His presence and experience His leadership in my life. And God took me and said, okay, this direction you're on that you think you want me to bless, I'm not going to bless that. That's not what I created you for. I've got a whole different trajectory for you. And I got onto God's trajectory. And, and it's not like things have been perfect since then. I've never made any bad choices. But I look at, I look at the, the incredible change, the, the way God has taken me, the path He's brought me and Carrie and my two kids on because of that point in my life. When instead of just whining because things were bad, and they were, I I got down on my knees and said, okay, God, you need to change me because I'm too selfish to be a good husband. You've given me this incredible young woman, and I'm going to ruin it because I'm a selfish jerk, and and you've put me in a position where my boss is not a Christian, and I've got a great opportunity to witness to him, but I'm so temperamental and stupid, I can't do that, and I'm messing everything else up, so can you change me? And those tears of repentance issued into joy. I look back on that time and I'm not, I don't enjoy thinking about it, but I'm thankful for it. Because of that period, so many good things have happened. God brought streams into the desert and brought my own deliverance. Not my initial salvation, but yet another good thing God has done for me. In another way, God is, has put me on a new trajectory. So I don't know what you'll do with these psalms. Right now, if you're in a desert right now, will you sit before the Lord and just in all sincerity say, God, you know my heart. You know how hard this is for me. You know how much I want you to make things good again. But until you do, give me patience and let me not miss what you're trying to teach me. Will you do that? Can you pray that? Can you have the trust to say, God, you know better than I do. I want to trust you in the meantime. For those of you like me, like me, I'm not in a storm or a desert right now. Life is good for me. I've got nothing but blessings. And if you're like me, and there are some of you like that, probably most of you, would you be willing to just take a moment to, to just walk away from all your hustle and bustle and just sit down for 30 minutes or an hour and write down, Lord, if you'd not been on my side, here's where I would be. Would you take a moment to just praise God for what He's done? See, You need to remember your rescue every single day because it will save you again and again and again.